All right, I am live here today with Charles Coulomb, a friend of mine. Last saw you, I guess we saw each other last in Austria. And today's a big day globally. We've got the coronation of King Charles III. And Charles and I have both been uh, casting Molotov cocktails on Twitter over uh, this heretical king. He is a heretical king who was uh, coronated today by Anglicans, and uh, maybe we have a different view on it. I don't know. We'll find out as we go. We want to talk about the history of heretical kings, Catholics, subject to heretical kings. And I want to get your take on something before we go into the history here, Charles. First of sure. all, first of all, welcome. Always a pleasure Thank to have you. you on. Great to be here. All right, here's a tweet I wrote, and I want your honest reaction. I know you've seen it already. The coronation rite of King Charles is the English version of LARPing, live-action role-playing, as medieval Catholics, while simultaneously denying the substance of true Catholicism. It is a mockery of Christian monarchy. St. Edward and St. Thomas More pray for us. Well, I certainly go along with the very last invocations, without a doubt. The uh, As for the rest of it, uh, it's a little bit like saying that when I swore allegiance to defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I was willing to risk my life for gay marriage and abortion. And I had thereby, and some of our Latin American and uh, continental European friends would say this, uh, that I had sworn my soul to the great architect of the universe. Right. And that's a reading you could put on it. Mm -hmm. But I think an overly simplistic reading. Oh, my All right, counterpoint, counterpoint, counterpoint. When you make that promise regarding the Constitution, nothing in the Constitution says Freemasonry, uh, sodomy, unnatural marriage. None of that is in there. But what, today, when King Charles, and I believe he's a king. All right, I also believe monarchy is the highest and best form of government. I'm. I'm not here as, as some American um, anti-monarchist. But when a king vows in public with witnesses to uphold the Protestant religion, yeah. that's anti-Christian. Well, let me take you back a step. Okay. Again, the, uh, our same friends in Latin America and continental Europe would say that our Constitution, because of its endorsement of religious indifferentism, was in fact itself a tacit endorsement of Freemasonry. And the fact that all of our major governments. That's a good point. Uh, That's a good point. And, and again, it's true and it's not true, if you see what I mean. Similarly, they would say that because all of our major governmental buildings, the White House, the Capitol Building, and the Supreme Court, and several others, were initiated with Masonic rights, any of us who served the government of the United States in whatever capacity, military or civil, uh, have been members, uh, so to speak, of some kind in the uh, Masonic Order. I don't think that's true. Yeah. But I can see why you would think that. Um, not not something I would go along with, but there it is. Right. So, All right, so let's talk about, I, I really want you, I, everybody knows I, you, you talk about monarchy, and I want to go down this trail I will of go down heretical that trail. kings. We'll go down that trail, but you've got to remember something. The situation we have now, and this is why I brought up the American example, is a complex one that's evolved over a long period of time. 
and everyone living today, from King Charles III to whoever is sweeping up uh, Westminster Abbey right now afterwards, <laughs> uh, every one of them have inherited the situation they have, even as we, you and I have, the situation we've got. And that's an important thing to bear in mind, too. The other thing I should do before I say anything else is declare my own prejudice in this area. On the one hand, I descend from a man who fought at Culloden uh, for uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. And on the other hand, I'm primarily French-Canadian. And, of course, our religion was preserved to us by King George III with the Quebec Act, which was denounced in the most Orwellian terms in uh, the Declaration of Independence. So you'll see the views of the French Canadians until we lost the faith in the Quiet Revolution were very pro-British monarchy because they gave us our religion, our freedom, and our laws. So a very different way of looking at the whole thing. But I just leave that out there to rest for a moment. The real thing to me, the important thing here, first and foremost, is that the coronation rite we saw today like everything else about the British monarchy, is a desiccated remnant of a Catholic order. Now, the fact that it's desiccated is kind of like a Novus Soto mass in a, a beautiful cathedral. You know, mm -hmm. guitar, guitar is the Stephansdom. I've seen that. Yeah. I've seen an, an English Novus Soto with guitars, just like my childhood in the Stephansdom. And it's a bit like that. So... How do you deal with that? It's a little bit bizarre. The other thing that's unfortunately true is that most of the prayers of the English coronation rite have remained exactly the same for a thousand years. They come to us from Catholic times. And if you look at them carefully, if you examine them, you will see some intimations of what the church always taught about monarchy, about kingship, about all sorts of things. And they're the only example you're going to see because sadly, since 1916, as far as kings went, and since 1963, as far as popes went, there are no Catholic coronations. We have no other example to look at. Nothing. Zip, nix, nay, nothing. So there's that. All right. Then we have to look at the uh, one of the things that was brought up, and this makes today's coronation very unusual. Back in 1685, the Catholic King James II was crowned with the same right you saw today. Different oath, obviously. The oath that he took was the same that Henry VIII and all the medieval kings had taken, and that Elizabeth I took, which was an oath simply to defend the church and her rights and so on and so forth. It was changed to a much worse version of what you have now in 1688 for William III. And then uh, Edward VII objected to it because it included a clause attacking transubstantiation. And as you may or may uh -huh. not know, he was, Edward was the first king to go to a Catholic mass since James II. So Edward VII objected to it, and George V wouldn't take it, and they reduced it to what you have now. Uh, the, old, the old one, as I say, was terrible. It really it attacked transubstantiation directly. Anyway, so James II is going to be crowned king. Now, mind you, he's Catholic, and he's going to become head of the Anglican Church of England and the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, with papal permission, of course. This may sound peculiar until you realize that the Emperor of Austria, the King of Bavaria, the King of Saxony, all Catholics and all heads of the Protestant churches in their countries with papal permission. Again, this is stuff people don't well, know, but it's I think important. we should be careful on the term head, because even in England, the term 
is Supreme Governor. Supreme Governor. Yes. But the point is that James II was the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Now, of course, today the king doesn't appoint the uh, appoint the bishops of the CMEA, not since 1688. That's done by the prime minister. And of course, since the current prime minister is a Hindu, that'll be interesting to see. <laughs> but he uh, not, not that I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> but and the the Taoiseach of Ireland is a Pakistani. The uh, the uh, prime minister of, of Great Britain is a Hindu, which makes me wonder if the future fight between Ireland and Britain will be between Islam and Hinduism. But who knows? Anyway, the uh, the thing is that King James was presented with a bit of a problem. But the Pope approved the Anglican uh, service, the text of it. He was duly crowned, anointed with oil that had been prepared by his own, uh, by a Catholic vicar apostolic. From that time until this coronation, the chrism used at the coronation of the kings of England has not been by our standards valid. But something very strange happened this time. Oh, and before I forget, most Catholic kings were crowned with the oil of catechumens, not with chrism, even the Holy Roman Emperor was. But five kings, France, Scotland, Jerusalem, Sicily, and England, by papal permission, had chrismed. Well, what makes this year different is that the Greek Orthodox Patriarch of Constant, or uh, Jerusalem, rather, uh, was the one who prepared and consecrated the chrism. So the chrism, believe it or not, was valid chrism. It was the real thing. And that's the first time a king of England has been anointed with valid chrism since 1685. Amazing. Now, what, the, what that means, I don't know. Now, I, you know. I just learned about this about an hour ago. And nah. I, want, I, want, I want proof, first off. I, I assume it's there. But who yeah, there is. initiated that? Because... If well, I was an Anglican priest, you could go to every single Anglican priest and say, is your chrism valid? And they would all 100% say yes. So who thought of going to the Orthodox Patriarch of Jerusalem and getting the mix the king. of the chrism? The king. He requested king. it? Yeah. Wow. See, you've got to remember, the king's father was Greek Orthodox originally, Prince Philip. Okay. Uh, he converted to Anglicanism to marry the queen. And then in 1992, when the Church of England brought in priestesses, he very quietly returned to orthodoxy. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. The king, well, see, people don't. Yeah. The king uh, has spent a lot of time at Mount Athos. Uh, that's why they had the Greek psalm in the coronation. Uh, mm -hmm. He loves orthodoxy. He also loves St. Catherine of Siena, but that's a whole other story. Now, when you say he uh, loves orthodoxy, you're referring to Charles III. Yeah. To the, now he hasn't, good, he hasn't converted or done anything no, official. Yeah, no, not not obviously. to my knowledge. Obviously, the one thing the one thing he did do that that a uh, anybody but a Serbian Orthodox would do is that he would not join the Masonic Order, which is why he's not the Grand Master of the Lodge in in England, the way his grandfather and great grandfather were. That's why the Duke of Kent, who's his uh, his uncle, well cousin is the head of the lodge in England, not him. Now that presumably is because of his orthodoxy. I can't imagine any other reason he wouldn't do it because it was pro forma. So at any rate, uh, so you've got that chrism. As you know, 
uh, Pope Francis gave him some uh, pieces of the true cross, not something I would have done, but it was done. And the interesting thing, most sets of regalia in Catholic Europe, in medieval Europe, had processional crosses, very often with pieces of the true cross in them. We can see one here in Vienna. The British, or the English, I should say, never did. And so what he did with those relics was have them put into a processional cross. And now, presto changeo, the crown jewels of England have a processional cross, the pieces of the true cross in them, just like Austria and France. So they've caught up or caught back or never mind. So, I mean, it was all very, that part was very interesting. The prayer that he composed for his own use at the coronation, that was his own doing entirely. Uh, he composed that on his own. And the other thing that was very interesting about it, to me anyway, uh, about his accession, they had said for years that he was going to take the name George Seventh in honor of his grandfather and so on. They said he would never take the name Charles III because it was too closely connected with Catholicism and the Stuarts. Charles I, of course, lost his head to Cromwell defending his people and also negotiating for a union with Rome, which was not appreciated in some quarters. Charles II came into the church on his deathbed and the man whom other people, myself among them, would call the real Charles III, uh, he of course was Bonnie Prince Charlie of Jacobite fame. So when he said he would take the name Charles III, I was pretty, pretty astounded. You know, what, is, what does he mean by this? What is he telling us? The answer is, I don't know. But it, it was a strange thing. And so, you know, I, I've been reading his writing and all that very carefully for the past 30 years. Uh, are you familiar with the Black Spider letters? No. Well, basically, about 10 years ago, the uh, Guardian uh, discovered, it used to be that the correspondence between the Prince of Wales and government officials were uh, protected by the Official Secrets Act. The Guardian, uh, buying the Rupert Murdoch line, the Prince of Wales was kind of a moron, uh, went to court to try to get them exposed to the public, his, co his correspondence with these people. They're called the Black Spider Letters because of his hand writing, it's black ink, very spidery. So uh, it was funny because David Cameron, as prime minister at the time, fought tooth and nail to keep them from being exposed. The Guardian pushed, but Clarence House, which was the Prince of Wales residence then, said nothing. I said, well, you know, whatever the courts decide, that's fine. Well, the courts decided in favor of the Guardian, and then the letters came out. Well, they were pretty amazing, and of course, that's why they pretty quickly vanished off the public screen. Because what you had was a whole series of letters from various local people in England. Uh-oh. We lost you, Charles. We just lost Charles. We'll get him back on here. He's giving us a history on uh, heretical kings, in particular, the heretical kings of England. Okay, he's calling him back. We lost you, Charles, but you're back. I'm back. Uh, where, where did you leave me? When did you uh, lose me? Did uh, you? The, they, they disappeared from public view or something like that. Precisely. Okay. Because when they were exposed, you can read them all online. What they showed was that various citizens in different jams with various government agencies, in both parties too, not just the one, uh, wrote to the Prince of Wales asking for assistance. 
And he, in turn, would take up these particular issues, the various bureaucrats, uh, government ministers, and other uh, drones at the trough, demanding answers. And, and if you look at them, he comes across as a very intelligent, uh, dare I say, concerned individual. And the government people involved come across as everything from lazy to moronic. Not that those are bad traits. I don't, especially government people. I never, you know, I wouldn't want to say anything against them. But uh, I mention this because, uh, as an individual, the uh, the king is far from what I would like to say. He shares all the superstitions of the ruling classes, including our pope, about climate change and population and this and that. All those superstitions that our betters and masters share. But, and here's the big but, three quarters of the things he pushes, though, are the kinds of things people, normal people would push if they had the ability to do so. And they don't, as a rule. It, I'll put it to this way. Much as he's far from everything I would like, he's far better than the vast majority of creatures I've been allowed to vote for. But that's him as a person. Now, mind you, I've been allowed to vote for very few Catholics in my life, and most of the Catholics that have been presented to me have been, oh, how do I put this nicely? Suboptimal? Yeah. Below par, perhaps. And so you look at the whole thing. It's not a great deal, but I can't expect more out of the King of Great Britain, the head of the Church of England, or sorry, the Supreme Governor, than I can out of the Holy Father. And I'd be foolish to try. Mm -hmm. I can say one other thing, and I think it's worthwhile to remember. When you look at our British, Canadian, Australian, etc., uh, brethren, who are, especially the Catholic variety, who are very fond of him, you've got to bear in mind that he is the only apolitical focus of loyalty they have, like a living flag. And that is something that's very difficult to slate for citizens of a republic where everything is political. But as you well know, our presidents are presidents only of the part of the country that voted for them. They're, they don't unite us, they divide us. Yes. That's how they get into power. And you also know, as I'm, I'm sure, that they spend half their job trying to learn their job and the other half trying to get reelected. So they're, the attraction of British, Canadian, etc., Catholics to their king is something that's very difficult for us to understand because we don't look at governance at all in the same light. We really don't. I. All right, but what about this? What about this? Mm -hmm. I I understand. He is the king. We fear the king. We submit to the king. These are Christian virtues. These are Christian teachings. We render unto Caesar. Even when Caesar is a pagan who worships idols, this is Christian teaching. This is the Catholic yep. faith. Here's, I think, the difference. What troubles me is seeing Catholics, in particular traditional Catholics. And by the way, for everyone out there, I went to Mass today. It's first Saturday Mass. And I offered my Mass intention for King Charles III. All right? I'm not in any malice here. I don't wish him any ill will. But I am troubled by seeing traditional Catholic or Catholics in general falling over themselves and celebrating this as sort of this monument to Christian monarchy. 
I can't imagine what my last point and I'll let you I'll give you the mic. I can't imagine St. Athanasius, the great Trinitarian doctor, rejoicing and celebrating and spilling his tea on himself over an Arian, the coronation of an Arian monarch. To me, it is a penitential moment, not celebratory. What say you, Charles? Go for it. Should I celebrate the 4th of July? You give me your answer and I give you mine. Yes, you should. You should celebrate the 4th of July. The okay. independent, the independence of our country. It's a good thing. The founding. All right. I'll, I'll put it to you this way. Remember that that independence was initiated by hatred of my people being given our religion. And remember that when they invaded Canada, the Americans forbade the mass. General Worcester. Now. No. Agree. I, you'll never find me on, defending the American hold on, hold on, legacy. Hold, hold on. Hold on. If that was all there was to the story, I would say no. But of course, that's not all there is to the story. Because a lot has happened since the year of our Lord, 1776. My family came down to the United States. We did very well in the United States. The country did well by us. And my grandfather, my father, my brother and myself served in our armed forces. I love my country. But I, when I celebrate the 4th of July, and I celebrate it, I am not celebrating the hatred that the founding fathers had for my religion. That's not what I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating every the country, everything the country has become since. That's what I'm celebrating. You understand me? Yes, of I'm course. I'm celebrating the country that welcomed us, the country that brought us all sorts of goodies. Now, when Catholics today celebrate the coronation of the king, they're really celebrating two things. One, they're celebrating governance above party and an institution that has been part of the country for over a thousand years. Again, that's a little hard for us because we haven't been around all that long, but still, it's hard to realize how that gets into your bones. But the second thing is that it's so much better than it was in terms of their relationship with Catholics. And I told you about Edward VII. I neglected to mention he came into the church on his deathbed, didn't I? I neglected that, but he did. Yeah. Now, Padre Pio claimed that George V saved his soul. Well, I wasn't there, I don't know. But that's what Padre Pio said. Wow. The interesting thing, too, is that George V was euthanized. Not saying there was a connection, just saying. <laughs> I don't know, I wasn't there. Uh, so... Every, uh, every Sunday after high mass in the traditional rite in England and elsewhere, they uh, sing the, the uh, Salvum uh, Fac Regum. Yes, the prayer for it's the good. Yeah, I agree with it. it. Well, I do too, but there's more to it. I don't know a traditional Catholic around. And bear in mind, when you're going to the British Armed Forces, and again, this is something I know a little about, going to Armed Forces, well, very little. I mean, my time was during the 80s when the motto of the National Guard was sleep well, America, your National Guard does. So don't don't think you're looking at some kind of war hero here. Don't thank me for my service. It, 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 it was a lot of fun. And that's all I'll say about it. But nevertheless, uh, I have a certain regard for my, for my country and for the Constitution because I swore an oath to it. 
There is not a veteran in Britain who didn't swear an oath to the king. Same in Canada and Australia, etc. Uh, and thus, they have a regard for their king that we have for our constitution. And that's just the way it is. And that, you know, you don't have to respect it. You don't have to like it. But that brings me to the last point, and that is that I do not know a traditional Catholic in Britain who, A, does not love the monarchy, but B, doesn't pray for its constant conversion. I mean, doesn't pray constantly for its conversion. Right. Constantly for its conversion is what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, of course, you know, I, you may have seen I, I tweeted somewhere today. If we're on Twitter all the time, does that mean we're twits? Yes, Just a it thought. does. Anyway, it most but, definitely does. All right, I can't argue with it, so I won't. But um, no, the the uh, the question came up of, um, of St. Thomas More, and oh no, it wasn't just that. Somebody asked, "Why is it that it's the scions of the Recusant families who went through so much hell, who are the biggest loyalists in England today? Why is that?" It's a fair question, and the answer is to be found in St. Thomas More. When he said, I am the king's good servant, but God's first, it didn't mean he wasn't the king's good servant, quite the contrary. Because he was God's servant first, he was more loyal to King Henry VIII than any of the sycophants that uh, encouraged him to do what he did. Right. A true friend. And so similar. Yes, indeed. A true friend. And so similarly, every, I tell you, there is no man more loyal to the king in England, Scotland, or Ireland this night than the descendants of the men who suffered at the hands of his predecessors for the same reason, because they know St. Thomas More. They know St. John Fisher. They know St. Edmund Campion, who went to his death praying for Queen Elizabeth, who by our standards was a legitimate queen because she reneged on her uh, deal with the Pope to get crowned. He recognized her legitimacy in return for approving her coronation. So again, these things, if you're not really familiar with them, they're easy to misread, easy to misunderstand, just as our own are. You know, yes. uh, you've heard me go on about being French Canadian. Well, you'd be very, you, it would be difficult to blame you if you said, so what, you got two loyalties? You're more French Canadian than you are American? It would be easy to think that. It would be right. wrong, but I'd understand why you would think that. Yeah. And so it goes. So. I don't say that uh, everybody has a religious obligation to emulate the views of the English, of the English Catholics. I don't say that at all. What I do say is that we uh, do have an obligation to try to understand them and to realize it's a much more complex issue than we think. But wait, there's more. Uh, you didn't point out some of the more objectionable things of the coronation, so I will. The, uh, the bishopesses were my personal favorite. Nothing quite like a bishopess. I predict, in my best Criswellian mode, that if things continue as they are now, right now, then in 10 or 12 or however many years when King William is crowned, Prince William now, I am willing to wager even money that there'll be an Archbishop S of Canterbury. Oh, oh, oh. be horrible. It'd be if horrible. So, I think so. But I, I didn't say I liked it. Just to be fully woke. But, well, see, this is the way things are going. Yeah. This is the I mean, again, who could have imagined the Pope worshipping Pachamama? Right. And again, I don't expect more out of the king than I do out of the Pope. 
True. And so far, King Charles hasn't adored any idols, to my knowledge. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, of course. As a Californian, I don't judge. But, <laughs> but the truth is, seriously, it's a screwed up situation all around, up and down, yep. all around the town. You could not point to a single larger country. Otherwise, somebody will say Liechtenstein. You can't point to a single country today that is decently governed or decently run by decent people. And the church, well, the less said, the better. So in the midst of all that, I think suspended judgment over particular cases is a smart move. I don't mean to say don't have any views. What I mean to say is talk to English Catholics. Find out why they hold what they hold. Maybe they have a reason for it. They might actually have views of their own that may be as important to them as yours are to you or mine are to me. And believe me, believe me when I tell you my views are really important to me. It, <laughs> it, no, they are actually, but to the degree that I have any, of course. But seriously, uh, it's the, the oath, of course, is obnoxious. That's my that is my sole objection. That is, well, that, it uh, is that oath, to me it is a oath. satanic, anti-Catholic, anti-Christian uh, inversion of the entire ceremony. Charles, you and I both know that that ceremony did not make Charles the king. The death of his mother made him the king. Correct? Yeah, the death of his yes. mother made him the so, king. So the the ceremony but. is in place in the church, in Christianity, in order to provide an external sign and a signature and to give him the graces to rule as a Christian king. That's what the yep. coronation is about. Just like a pope yes, becomes sir. a pope when he accepts the election of him as pope, not when he was coronated as pope. So yeah. the fact that at, this, at in the middle of this beautiful, as you said, a desiccated medieval ceremony, is still the defense of the Protestant religion, it's a mockery. It's it's pretty obnoxious. But having said Very. that, having said that, I can only refer to my own oath to defend the Constitution. And remember, when I did that, abortion was part of the Constitution. And you can say, well, that came later. No, no, no. The Constitution is the Constitution as it is. No, but it a would be different. Document. It would be different. I could I could swear allegiance to the if I were an Englishman to the King of England and and, and be scots free. I mean, I could be I would be clean. But if I said I also affirm abortion, then I'm not. Well, then you're not. But the thing is, the Supremes, who as we know are the divinely ordained interpreters of the Constitution, the Supreme Court, the Oracles at Delphi. <laughs> They maintained that, in fact, well, they did maintain, now they've changed their mind, but they did maintain that abortion was part of it. And they do maintain that gay marriage is part of it. And judging by the uh, foreign policy of my country, sitting here in Austria watching the rainbow flag over my uh, embassy, I can't tell you how proud that makes me. Right. I really can't tell you how proud that makes me. I really can't tell you how proud that makes me. <laughs> I really can't. I'm just not able to. Yeah. Every time I pass that thing, I'm just so proud right? in some way or other. But uh, nevertheless, the great constitutional authorities would tell us that this is all part of it. And they would tell me that that's what I was swearing allegiance to. I would say they're wrong, which is why I took the oath, obviously. Right. 
if I thought that's what I was swearing an oath to defend. Now, with this, but I mean, our case is more slippery. This we have a televised moment of a man disavowing Catholicism. It is, it is much more explicit. We have to grant it. It is very, I will grant it. But, and here's the big but, as always, there's a big but. If the president of France, who is a canon of St. John Lateran, by virtue of his office, still also taken in, oh, yes. Nicolas Sarkozy was the very first divorced canon of St. John Lateran. I saw his enthronement on French TV. It was beautiful. (laughs) What? It was great. The president of the Republic won an indivisible the current carrier of French revolutionary ideals. And he's a canon of St. John Lateran. What's not to like, right? Yeah. So I say this because in the world of oaths and so forth, you have a lot of strange and slippery things. Here's a Protestant. No one can ever call him again as a syncretist. Because that was the other thing. People would yap at him, either he was a Protestant or he was a syncretist. And they sometimes they attack him for being both. Well, he's not a syncretist. We know that for sure now. Now, how Protestant he is and what he means by Protestant, horse of a different color. I can't read his mind, but I do know that Anglicans tend to read Protestant in very strange ways. Uh, and as uh, as the proud uh, as as a, a proud former Jesuit student, I can tell you that mental reservations are the very stuff of statecraft. What was really going on in his head and what he means by being a Protestant, I couldn't tell you any more than I could tell you what his father meant by being Orthodox. Now, if I were Orthodox, I don't think I could receive at Anglican services. But Prince Philip did after he became Orthodox. And Hmm. apparently it didn't bother whoever was in charge of him. Hmm. And his mother, you know, uh, the the, uh, king's grandmother was a Greek Orthodox nun. Now, I'll tell you honestly, I find mental reservations a very slippery slope, but I am not in a position to figure out other people. It's my own Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Am I all right? Am I still here? Yeah, you broke up a little Uh, bit. We lost you for about 30 seconds, but you're back. Oh, maybe you're not. uh, With me, thousands. Am I here? Yes, you are here, but it's breaking up a little bit. This is tedious. I know. I think the dancing's making it worse, Charles. I think the dancing is, is expanding your your bit. <laughs> or 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 or, 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 or sense our views, but not the dancing. I think so. Yeah, I, I, I suspect someone is going to start making memes of of Cologne dancing. It's going to be fun. It's fine by me. I, uh, I've long ago. One of the, one of the great things about being sixty two, to be honest with you, and then, of course the king's seventy three. Yes, right. yeah. and is it true he's the oldest coronated monarch in human history? That's what I heard today. I don't know about human history because a lot of. Uh, a lot of heathen countries had a lot of strange ceremonies, like with the Ottomans, for instance. The heir to the throne is not the oldest son. It's the next oldest prince. 
so of, of the remaining generation. So like uh, if you're the Sultan and you died, it could go to this wizened old fellow who was your dad's first cousin. I, I, I may, I may have, have my facts wrong, but right. at any rate, uh, but certainly he's, I think he's the oldest British, uh, British uh, monarch, uh, British heir to the throne. Edward the seventh was, I think, 60 when he became king. Uh, and that was pretty, pretty up there then. But of course, people live a lot longer now. You know, I'm, uh, you may not remember this, but I remember when Reagan was running the first time. And people were saying, oh, it's terrible. Why? When he's inaugurated, he'll be 70. Well, now the White House is an old age home. I know. And it would have been, and it would have been if uh, Mr. Trump had been elected. He isn't that much younger than Mr. Biden. He's not senile, but still. Yeah. Um, so, and isn't it ironic that Paul VI said that uh, popes over the age of, what is it, uh, 80 can't vote? I think it is Cardinals, Cardinals, Cardinals. Yeah, cards. What I say, yeah, Cardinal yeah, popes. Yeah, yeah, popes yeah. Over the age yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't vote. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Car yeah, Cardinals over the age, and now the world leadership is getting quite old. You know why? Medicine. My generation isn't going to give anything up. <laughs> we boomers rule, and we're not going to rest until the summer of love returns. <laughs> Of course, we're all a little too old for it. Right. Okay, so Charles, you think today's the day to, to pop a little champagne and, and have some fun or no? I do, because it's a day uh, a day for the British, Australians, Canadians, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, to celebrate not simply the monarchy, but everything in their country that isn't political. Everything that's still connected to the past. A reminder of what was and please God may again be. I mean, if King Charles did convert, not on his deathbed, but more recently, there'd be a constitutional crisis without a doubt. But interestingly enough, due to the change in law in the law recently, the past couple of years, the uh, consort can be Catholic, which was not the case before. So if the king became Catholic. Well, wait, wait, I guess that's, you're saying since Charles II. That's not been the case. Uh, right? Since, well, no, since uh, William the Third, the uh, the Queen could not be Catholic. Okay. Not not the King nor the Queen. But before uh, that, there fact, was there was that the case. Well, that's why James the Second became King. Right. He yeah. was there was no religious test. Right. He was he was the closest heir, so he became King. But after uh, William came in, they put in the uh, Act of uh, Succession. Right. Which uh, put all Catholics out of the succession. Now, uh, what's changed is that they can't become king, but the king could be married to one. So, uh, it could well be at some future time, or maybe, please God, I don't see it, but maybe, uh, a king wished to convert, you would have a constitutional crisis. And then, at that point, it would lie with the uh, the great people of uh, the British Isles, uh, whether they would back the king or his government, unless the government didn't want to fight over it. And if the Church of England continues to decay the way it's decaying, if you had either the current king or his son or his son decide this is a convinced Christian and decides, well, this isn't it, 
that could produce something, a conversion, that would, as I say, provoke a constitutional crisis. But by that time, things may have decayed to the point where the government wouldn't care. And they'd say, okay, well, sure, we'll pass a bill, and that's it. Yeah. See, one of the things you've got to remember about the British system, and this is something people often forget, is that the king, although we call him the sovereign and all that stuff, he's not. Parliament is sovereign. And what that means in reality is the prime minister. Yes. So that's where the prime minister appoints the bishops. Now, everything we, not quite everything, but most of the things, the vast majority of things that they say the king does is really done by the prime minister. Even giving out of the orders of knighthood, only three oh, right? are given out by the king. Yeah. Hmm. The rest of them are given out by the prime minister. I mean, they're given out by the king on the advice of the prime minister. So if you, when someone gets the, the Order of the British Empire or the Order of the Bath or anything like that, it's the prime minister's doing. And oddly enough, because prime ministers are politicians, every few years you have a, try not to be shocked. Are you ready? Honors for sale scandal. Yeah. Imagine politicians selling favors. <laughs> who would have thought, who could have seen that coming? So this happens every few years and people jump up and down and then they go back to sleep. But you look at the orders that the king himself appoints, that the queen appointed, the garter, the thistle, uh, the order of merit. You look at the quality of people that go into those versus a lot of the ones that go into the others, huge difference. So I've long thought that one way to reform the system would be simply to yank it out of the hands of the prime minister entirely and give it to the king or the queen. Yeah. And then, you know, you'll, you'll get a better, uh, a better bunch of, uh, of, of uh, folks. So the prime minister is really the person who makes the decisions. And that's important to bear in mind. If they were to pass a bill abolishing the monarchy tomorrow, so the saying goes, the king could not withhold the royal assent. Hmm. Now, that's a terrible position to be in. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you feel this tremendous sense of responsibility for your people in a way that none of us ever will but at the same time you have no control mm -hmm. so hence the black spider letters right um so it's it's a, a horrible situation to be in frankly and imagine that you inherited it imagine that you inherited the headship of a protestant church from your mm -hmm. beloved mother and your beloved grandfather how'd you like that there yeah, but for the grace of god go you and me yeah. Now, what do you think uh, of the king's consort, who was also crowned? Well, you know, she was she's a lot smarter than Princess Diana was. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, she uh, she's an interesting lady. Um, again, going back in time, uh, but much more recent time. In fact, within my own memory, uh, she married a Catholic, uh, Captain Nicholas. Uh, was Nicholas? Well, whatever. Parker Bowles, who was a Catholic. Um, I may be wrong, but I believe later she was free to marry the widow. Or Charles. She's, you know, she to him, a great help to him uh, in a way that uh, he apparently needed. Um, she certainly is a nicer lady than Wallace Simpson was. <laughs> I, not that I want to attack our fellow American. 
what do uh, what are the British? What are the what are the British and, and of the protectorates? What do they think of her? They started out disliking her intensely, but as uh, as they've gotten to know her, uh, her stock has risen mm. uh, because apparently, I mean, I've never I've never met either of them, but apparently she's a very uh, very charming lady. She's concerned with a lot of uh, a lot of worthwhile causes. Uh, and again, you know, these are things that you and I might turn up our noses at, garden clubs and stuff like that. But to the people who are actually doing that kind of work, or nurses, unions, and, and that sort of thing, if you're not a nurse or a gardener, you don't care. But if you are a nurse or a gardener, and a royal takes an interest in your work, it makes a huge difference. I'll give you an example from personal experience. No, I didn't sit down with the king. I've never met him. But uh, I was in Ireland four weeks ago. And I went to the north of Ireland. Now, there's a lady by the name of um, Margaret, I think, Margaret Gallagher, who uh, lives off the net in uh, uh, the wilds of County Fermanagh. And she's, uh, she lives in the uh, house that her great-grandfather built. No modern utilities, nothing. And she's been, there have been several documentaries about her. She raises her own sheep, grows her own food, all that kind of thing. Very nice lady. And I met her. I, I stop by you can you know you just go there she can't call her she doesn't have a phone uh but if you do go there you better go there a little bit before sundown because she goes to bed with the sun and gets up with the chickens all right why am i mentioning the dear lady well we're sitting there in her place peat fire burning sipping tea and eating cakes and i see a picture of the king on the wall a photograph the new king. The new king. And when he was Prince of Wales. And I said, the king's been here? And she goes, oh, yes, yes. When he was Prince of Wales, he came here. He wanted to know how I live and how I've kept it going and so on. Uh, a very charming man, very charming man. So that's as close as I've come to uh, interacting with the king. A peat fire in County Fermanagh. Yes. Uh, but the thing is, it, certainly, it made a huge difference to her. Because she lives a very hard life. Yeah. And he made a point of coming out to see her all mm -hmm. the way in the middle of nowhere. And I do mean the middle of nowhere. So, again, is he everything I would like him to be? No. Is he better than anything I'm likely to be able to vote for, especially from now on? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to be given anything better. I promise you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not going to happen to me. You might. You're a young man. But I won't. One thing that you've you've said on this podcast before that I really like, and maybe you can say it again for all the new audience, is how sure. much the plebeian class historically has been devoted and loved and defended by the monarchy. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. They think it's the the king and all of his rich friends. And they don't understand how it benefits the common man. Can you speak to that? I certainly can. One of the things, uh, and this is why, even if you didn't see it, you can uh, have a look at the order of the uh, coronation. You know, you can forget the oath, look at everything else. And for that matter, uh, pull out the pontificale uh, before 1960 and look at the, the rite of coronation there, which is very similar. Um, 
different, but similar. Every right of coronation in every country is a bit different, but their main major points are the same. And one of the oaths that the king takes is to do justice to all his subjects and to defend each of them as much from each other as from outsiders. And this, in some, in some periods of history, it's meant protecting landowners from ravaging peasants. But at other times, it's meant protecting, ravaging, uh, protecting peasants from ravaging landowners. And a very good example, since we're dealing with Charles's, is King Charles I. When he was executed by Cromwell, there were several charges against him. One, of course, was seeking reunion with Rome. And he refused to play, plead guilty or not guilty to anything because he wouldn't recognize the uh, uh, ability of the court to try him. But they brought up his correspondence with the Pope and so on, all of which was true. Uh, he was offered to spare his life if he would consent to the abolition of the bishops in the Church of England. Now, mind you, we know they're not valid. But in those days, it wasn't so clear. And in fact, prior to the Civil War, uh, Archbishop Laud was offered a cardinal's hat twice. And he laughingly refused it. What people forget is that the offer couldn't have been made if Charles I hadn't signed off on it. Right. So I'm afraid the king was a bit more pro-Roman than his Archbishop of Canterbury. Anyway, um, but the third thing, and this is a very important one, was his opposition to the enclosures. Uh, short version, uh, most of the farmland in England in those days was divided up into manors. And every peasant had a plot of land. But then there was a common land that technically belonged to the Lord of the Manor, but in practice was used by the, uh, by the peasants to farm their sheep or cattle or whatever they had to graze. So basically what started happening after Henry VIII, slowly at first, and then as people began making money, it picked up. Uh, various lords of the manor started enclosing the common lands, saying, well, you know, I do own this. It's mine. I'll graze my sheep on it. Because they could make a lot more money out of sheep than they could out of people. So, because if you were in a manner like that and you couldn't graze your sheep anymore, you couldn't have sheep or you couldn't have cows or whatever. So you had to leave. And they were driven. And of course, when you left, the Lord of the Manor would put sheep into your section now, not down your, your, your house, whatever you're living in, and let the sheep graze there as well. Uh, these were very similar to the Highland clearances in the 19th century. Well, King Charles opposed the, the enclosures with all his might. Everything he could do to stop them, he tried. And that, too, was thrown in his face. Because remember, the oligarchy that dominated Parliament, where a lot of them were precisely the same people who were closing the land. You see? Yeah. Uh, we forget this. We forget this completely. You know, it's the thing about medieval society, Catholic medieval society, was that all the different sections of, uh, of the state, the, the peasants, the cities, the nobles, the church, etc., they all had a certain amount of power. The king didn't have a great deal of power, but he had a certain amount of authority. You know, the difference between authority and power. Authority is the right to say what should happen. Power is the ability to make it, make it so. Your doctor has the authority to tell you what you should do, but he doesn't have the power to make you do it. So the king had authority, but he didn't have a lot of power, and a certain amount, but not a lot. A good king in those days was like an orchestra leader. 
And that meant balancing off one set with the other and trying to act as father of them all. A good king was like a good orchestra leader. But if you had a bad king, you didn't have tyranny, although he could make life unpleasant for his immediate people. What you had was anarchy. That was the great problem with the medieval state, was the periodic eruption of anarchy. With us, of course, it's the opposite. With us, power is concentrated and authority is diffuse. And in a situation like Britain or Sweden or Spain, where you've got a monarch, uh, he doesn't have much more power than his medieval predecessors did. What he really lacks is the authority, which is allegedly in the hands of the people. Right. But in reality, of course, is operated on their behalf. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, you, you look at, uh, you look at uh, Blessed Emperor Carl, of course, is one of my major studies at the moment. I'm writing a book on his wife, Empress Zita, which I hope to have done by the 1st of September. My publishers want it even more than I do, but that's a whole other story. Uh, but, you know, he was beloved of the common man and disliked by the political folk. It was his uh, predecessor, his great uncle, uh, Franz Josef, who in 1905 was visited by Teddy Roosevelt, our president, who had just retired. But Teddy Roosevelt asked Franz Josef, what do you see your role as being uh, as a modern monarch? And he said, protecting my people from their politicians. Yeah. Which if you think about it, is just the modern version of what his medieval predecessors were trying to do, mm -hmm. allowing for the changed. And that, to be honest with you, an attempt at that is what you saw in the Black Spider letters. Yeah. Although King Charles doesn't have anything like the advantages that Franz Joseph had right. in trying to do that. And, and you see after so, Franz Joseph, as you move into Blessed Carl, and of course he has a very tragic demise, but even he, he, he recognizes because of his vow to God yeah. that he must, he must care for the common good and for every person in yeah. his in his realm and that's that's why they couldn't break him i mean they they broke his health but they didn't break his spear and they didn't break his his vow they, they didn't break him and one of the interesting things about today's coronation was that the was the prayer that the king composed for it himself it's a new prayer it's never been used before he made it up in which he asked to be uh to find his perfect freedom in doing his duty and in that freedom to find truth so I pray that God grant that wish mm -hmm. because I know what that truth is and you know what that truth is. Yeah. Let's pray the king and uh, all his subjects across the world come to know that same truth. And our fellow citizens. Amen. Don't want to leave us out. <laughs> Don't want to leave Amen. us out. All right. Great show, Charles. I love I love your your carefulness and your distinctions. And um, I think the audience sees you as sort of a, a soothing of my of my fiery ways and uh, my objections to the heretic king. Uh, let us let's pray a Hail Mary for King Charles III for his conversion to the one true faith, his inclusion into the Catholic Church and his submission to the Roman Pontiff. And all his subjects and all his subjects.
All right, oremos, we'll pray the Hail Mary together. In nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti, amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in molieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora per nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora modis nostrae. Amen. Amen. Nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, Charles, thanks so much. I'll, I'll be in Europe in June. Maybe we can meet up. Be great to see you again. Well, I'm graduating on June 24th. Okay. Saint Jean Baptiste, the patron saint of the French Canadians. Just thought I'd mention it. Very nice. Very providential. Very yeah. good. Uh, you know, it's okay. I, I was, was going to plug your book. I was going to plug your book. Oh, feel free. Uh, your latest book is is still the one on Blessed Carl. Yes. It is. I've got to. Uh, I've got to crank out two more this summer. No, I can't go home until I, I get them finished. Okay. Um, I've got to do the Empresita book for Tan, and for Angelico, I've got to do a collection of Archduke Otto's writings about America. Oh, so, fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, okay, it, so lots of is. lots of material coming out from Charles. Very good. All it right, is, and then everyone but, get. I, I I do heartily recommend his book on Blessed Carl. Also a Charles. We didn't even talk about that yep. today, but um, it's a very good book. It has a lot of facts in it. And uh, if, you're, if you're looking for the book on Blessed Carl of Austria, get the one by Charles Coulomb. Thank you. I, I would just say one last thing, and that is about my graduation day. I didn't plan this, but June 24th, the Feast of St. Jean-Baptiste, he has other roles. You know, cousin of our Lord, the forerunner, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Yes. But he's the patron of the French Canadians. Don't okay. ever forget that. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. All right. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for coming on today, Charles. Remember our um, everyone pray your rosary every day. And remember our Lord Jesus Christ is you're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless. Thank you, Charles. See you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.